Um, for anyone who studies the former Soviet Union, um, the idea, the concept of coalitional presidentialism is a bit strange, is a bit odd. Because in this part of the world, uh, presidents dominate um, their parliaments. And this is in contrast to a coalition government which requires a degree of power sharing between uh, the parliament and the executive. Indeed, in much of the academic literature on this part of the world, scholars talk about super-presidentialism. To date, they haven't used the concept of coalitional uh, presidentialism at all. Um, and it's not just scholars. So um, one MP, one Russian MP, who we interviewed, um, gave this It's not working, I'm afraid. Uh, gave this response um, to a question about presidents who have been effective at using coalitions. And what this MP says is that there has never been, or there have never been, uh, presidential coalitions in Russia. So to talk about um, the effectiveness of presidents is a redundant question. In Russia, presidents are all powerful. Uh, the president today is no different to the general secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, is no different to a pre-revolutionary uh, czar. So in reality, presidents in his country, he argued, don't bargain with anyone. And that's the concluding line uh, of this quote. They don't reckon with anyone. Well, what we can say about the post-Soviet world is that since the early 1990s, presidents have frequently been unable to um, acquire single-party majorities in Parliament. And in those cases where there has been a degree of electoral competition degree of democracy, presidents have been forced to build multi-party coalitions in order to govern through their legislatures. And the three cases that we choose in this project, Russia, Armenia and Ukraine, all illustrate this. These are all cases of multi-party uh, presidentialism. Um, although the Russian case ceases to be multi-party in 2004, and we stop at 2004 for Russia. And in today's talk, I want to use um, data uh, from deputy interviews, MP interviews, about three particular episodes of uh, coalitional presidentialism in these cases. The first is Armenia. Um, this is the presidency of Robert Kuchurian between 2003 and 2007. At this time, the Armenian president had to construct a coalition of four parties to get the majority that he required in parliament. The second is the presidency of Vladimir Putin, his first presidency 
between 2000 and 2003. Vladimir Putin also required a coalition of four parties uh, to govern through the lower house, the state Duma, um, at this time. And the final case, uh, episode of coalitional presidentialism, if you like, is um, the presidency of uh, Viktor Yanukovych after the constitutional reforms of 2010. And at this time, Viktor Yanukovych was also, um, was also required to build um, a coalition of four parties. Um, and the names of these parties are included in this slide. The Party of Regions, the Communist Party, Reforms for the Future, and the Litvin Bloc. But were these coalitions um, managed in a super-presidential way? Or were they more typical of coalitional presidentialism, i.e. what Dr. Chernik has just described, governance arrangements that vary by bargaining context? Now, because our research seeks to uncover the tools that presidents use to govern through parliaments, the resources, the strategies um, that they use to build uh, coalitions, it allows us to get at this question. From a super-presidential perspective, presidents rely mainly on two sets of tools. The first is excessive legislative power, excessive agenda-setting power. So presidents in this part of the world have great formal um, lawmaking powers. Many of them can rule by decree. They have powers of veto. They have powers to initiate legislation, uh, as well as other uh, constitutional prerogatives that put them in an extremely powerful position vis-à-vis -vis the parliament. But the literature also emphasises a second set of tools, informal tools. And these are the availability of vast financial resources and coercive powers uh, that presidents can use to persuade and in some cases intimidate MPs. But do the MPs that we interviewed agree that these are the main ways in which presidents dominate parliaments in their countries? Or do their responses differ depending on the particular process that is being discussed, i.e. whether presidents are forming or maintaining coalitions, and is there also evidence to suggest that presidential behavior varies from country to country and according to where the particular MP sits within the political hierarchy um, of the parliament? And what I'll now do is quickly run through some of our findings um, on these questions as well as
sort of concluding with um, our findings on the consequences of coalitional presidentialism for governance and democracy in the region more generally. So first then, which tools do presidents use to form coalitions in this part of the world? Well, um, to get at this question, we asked deputies to rank tools in terms of their effectiveness in forming coalitions. And the first table uh, presents, I hope you can see this, it's a bit distant, uh, well, it's distant for me. It's probably not, <laughs> it's probably not distant for you. Um, uh, presents um, uh, the results uh, for those tools that MPs considered to be the most uh, important in the formation of coalitions. The first thing to note is that those tools that are typically associated with super-presidentialism i.e. the excessive legislative power of presidents and their informal powers of persuasion are not at the top of the list. MPs do not say that these are the most important. So if we look at Ukraine and Armenia, MPs in the two countries um, identify cabinet positions as by far the most important tools used by presidents um, to form coalitions. So in this case, in these two cases, uh, we see um, behavior that is much closer to what we would expect in a parliamentary system than what we would expect in a super-presidential system. In a super-presidential system, presidents don't share power with anyone. If you remember the quote that I... Uh, presented at the outset. The second finding is um, the interesting cross-country variation. So Russian MPs don't consider cabinet powers to be that important in the formation of coalitions. Um, and if you look at Russian cabinets, there are very few party um, members represented. For Russian MPs, the most important thing are the partisan powers that presidents have. What I mean by that is the influence that presidents have over the parties that make up um, the coalition. And this is not surprising, given that at this time, um, Vladimir Putin's sort of political project is to create a new party united Russia. And these four parties that make up his coalition at this time form the basis for that new party. But were these tools um, sufficient for our three presidents to maintain coalitions during these three episodes, during these three parliaments? Well, there's interesting variation here too. And this variation can be seen both at the country level and at the level of coalition part partners. So in semi-structured interviews, when we asked Ukrainian deputies 
about the importance of uh, cabinet membership for the maintenance of coalitions. Some MPs argued that for their particular party, um, cabinet posts were not that desirable. So the Communist Party, for example, one of the main allies of Viktor Yanukovych in Ukraine, um, refused, and still refuses, I think, to take posts in the Ukrainian cabinet. Because politically, that is a bad move for them. They want to distance themselves politically from um, Yanukovych. That's not to say that they do not take posts within the executive, the wider executive, that are arguably as important. So there's always a communist who heads the customs uh, union, a very powerful executive agency in Ukraine. Uh, but Ukrainian, um, so Ukrainian communists are reluctant to take cabinet posts. Also, for another... Um, coalition partner, the Reforms for the Future Party. This was a parliamentary party that was formed from businessmen who defected from the opposition after the failure of the Coloured Revolution in 2010. Well, the failure of the Coloured Revolution to sort of consolidate the power of um, the leader of the Coloured Revolution, Yushchenko. I won't go into too much detail here anyway. Um, but I, need, I needed to clarify that point. Um, for those MPs who uh, defected from, if you like, the Orange Alliance, um, business, their, their own business interests were far more important than securing a position in the cabinet. Uh, so for them, it was the most important tools were the informal tools um, that presidents have to maintain coalitions. Business perks, for instance. And as a consequence, many of our MPs refer to these particular members of parliament as tushki, as roadkill, as, as poultry. Um, this is the sort of disparaging term that is referred to those, those particular individuals in the Ukrainian parliament. Not my term, these are terms used by uh, Ukrainian MPs. In Russia, um, the use of partisan powers also proved insufficient to maintain the loyalty of all coalition members. So many regional MPs um, who um, were elected as independents and who joined uh, Putin's coalition as members of a parliamentary party, Russia's regions, um, they weren't particularly interested in uh, joining this party-building project. They just wanted to maintain good budget subsidies for their regions. So for these MPs, uh, the president's budgetary tools were far more important than partisan powers. And Russia, of the three cases comes closest um, in terms of deputies having a conventional understanding of budgetary pork. And in contrast, finally, in Armenia, um, the president seemed to have faced um, the fewest difficulties in maintaining the support of his uh, coalition.
And it's only in particular moments of crisis uh, that the president uses other tools uh, from his toolbox uh, to maintain his coalition. Um, and the complexity of these sort of bargaining environments became even more evident when we asked MPs about the reasons why their parties joined the coalition. If you look at the results for Armenia, especially those uh, responses from members of the president's party, cabinet posts continue to be the f by far the most important reason why uh, uh, their party joined um, the president's coalition. But if we look at the other cases, Ukraine um, and Russia, and we look at the responses of both members of the president's party and members of parties that also joined um, the coalition, we see that for Armenia, sorry, for Ukraine, uh, cabinet posts are not ranked as highly as some other tools, policy influence. And for partners within the coalition, it's policy influence and favorable treatment of members. That's the euphemism for informal powers, for perks, and, 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 and for other things. Um, and likewise, in Russia, MPs, when talking about what their parties get out of the coalition, rarely talk about uh, the benefits the electoral benefits of being associated um, with, um, with the president, with President Putin, or the electoral benefits of joining this sort of party-building project. They talk about other tools too. So policy influence is one. If you look at the uh, coalition partners, they, talk, they rank policy influence above um, all other tools. They also talk about budget benefits, uh, policy influence is also ranked above electoral support by uh, members of the president's party. And um, when um, we asked deputies about the advantages and, uh, of being involved in a coalition and the disadvantages of being excluded from a coalition, um, these other tools became even more evident. So uh, if you look at the results... For Russia, members of the president's party, they talk about budget benefits as being the primary um, um, advantage of being part of the coalition, um, and loss of budget benefits as being the primary disadvantage of being excluded from the coalition. This is also emphasized by coalition partners. In Ukraine, uh, coalition partners talk about informal powers more than anything else, the bud especially the benefits for business um, and the business interests um, of uh, MPs and sort of coalition uh, partners for, from being um, involved in, 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 the, in the coalition. So just to conclude this section before talking a bit about the consequences of all of this for governance and democracy more generally, um, presidential management of parliament in all three cases, at least according to the interviews that we conducted with MPs, 
um, was far more complex, is far more complex than that suggested by theories of super-presidentialism. Um, and there do seem to be parallels here um, with the other cases, um, the other regions um, that we look at in this project, which suggests that there is something to this sort of coalitional presidential concept um, in, in the former Soviet Union. Now, when it comes uh, to the impact of, of coalitional presidentialism um, on governance, MPs are generally very positive about its effects. I apologize for this chart being in English. In fact, I apologize for all the charts being in English. Um, but I'll just quickly run through uh, some of the results here. Um, the first row um, presents the results for the impact of coalitional presidentialism on the president's legislative power. You can see that in all three cases, MPs uh, consider this to have a very sort of strong effect. It significantly increases the president's legislative power. Even stronger is the impact on legislative decisiveness. This is the second row. In Ukraine, 96% of our uh, respondents said that coalitional presidentialism increases decisiveness. The third row um, concerns whether coalitional presidentialism makes the president a hostage of the coalition. As you can see here, very few MPs, with the arguable exception of Armenia, um, think that presidents are constrained by uh, their coalition. And the next row um, are the responses on whether coalitional presidentialism increased political stability or not. As you can see, 80% of Armenian MPs think that coalitional presidentialism increases stability, 70% of Russians and 78% of Ukrainian MPs. And also, the last row is very interesting. The majority of MPs believe that coalitional presidentialism enhances the quality of public policy. Uh, although in Ukraine, there is difference between, uh, a significant difference between how members of the coalition and how members of the opposition respond to this question. And that's indicated by the asterisks. And there are very good political reasons for um, explaining why MPs are so positive about the impact of coalitional presidentialism on governance. This is some very basic data which shows the percentage of executive bills um, enacted before the coalition was created. That's uh, the first two bars on the bar chart. And the percentage of executive bills that were enacted after <laughs> the coalition was created. As they would say in Russia, you can see a big difference between the two. You know, it's not sort of rocket science, this. Clearly, it has a major, uh, major difference. Um, and also in Armenia, 
the coalitions are formed after a period of significant political instability. Uh, the first coalition is formed after an attempted coup in 1999, which results in the assassination of the Prime Minister, the assassination of the Speaker of the Parliament. This all occurs on the floor of the Armenian Parliament. So Armenian MPs also associate coalitional presidentialism um, with stability. And just the final slide... The results, though, for democracy are very different, okay? So while MPs are quite enthusiastic about uh, coalitional presidentialism in terms of its impact on governance, they don't think it's great for democracy. Yeah, so the first row is um, the impact of coalitional presidentialism on accountability, 61% of Armenian MPs say it reduces accountability. 70% of Russian MPs say it reduces accountability. Um, last row enhances the opposition. Uh, mar sorry, marginalizes the opposition, not enhances the opposition, marginalizes the opposition. 72% of Armenian MPs believe that coalitional presidentialism marginalizes the opposition. 66% of, of Russian MPs. In Ukraine, it's interesting. There's a clear split between um, coalition members and opposition members on this question. Opposition members are statistically more likely uh, to say that it marginalizes the opposition than, um, than uh, coalition members. But even for Ukraine, only th and this is the middle row, only 30% of our MPs um, questioned believe that coalitional presidentialism enhances democracy. And we have a similar, the same proportion in Russia and a slightly higher proportion in Armenia. So to conclude then, um, our research suggests that coalitions have existed and continue to exist in parts of the former Soviet Union, um, but there are interesting differences in the form that it takes. In Ukraine and Armenia, uh, it takes the form of multi-party cabinets. Um, in Russia, this is not the case. Um, and since 2004, coalitional presidentialism has been off the agenda in Russia. Contrary to the super-presidential perspective, which emphasizes the formal powers of presidents and their informal resources. Um, the presidential toolbox is complex and its usage varies according to bargaining context. And this suggests that presidents do use a range of tools, resources, strategies uh, when maintaining coalitions. But what we also found, <coughs> which I've not had chance to talk about today is that presidents are not always effective in using these tools. So both President Putin and President Yanukovych had to rely on support from outside of their coalitions uh, to guarantee majorities in these parliaments. Yet, while the mechanics of coalitional presidentialism 
do not fit neatly with this sort of super presidential framework, the outcomes are very similar. Yeah? Presidents dominate um, the legislative process, and this is at the expense of parliamentary accountability and party competition. And this trade-off between governance and sort of democracy is something that we see in our other regions, and I think this is something that Dr. Cheeseman will now talk to you about. So thank you very much.